advertising has changed, and TV ads, once reserved for big brands with bigger budgets, are now available to companies of all sizes and industries. Mountain's self-serve performance TV platform is leading the charge by making TV easier and more affordable than ever. Performance TV gives you access to tens of thousands of audience segments with ads served exclusively on top streaming networks and campaigns automatically optimized thousands of times a day for peak performance. The result is a high-impact ad that will always find its target regardless of what show they're watching. Visit Mountain.com to learn more. The UK is known for its creative industries and cultural influence around the world in areas such as music, comedy, television, and news. But is the UK really still a cultural powerhouse? The country has long used its soft power to gain influence for brand UK abroad, but does this still stand? Advertising Week Europe 2022 brought parties to the stage to delve into this issue, which brings media, politics, and economy together. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for coming today. My name is Ruth Mortimer. I'm the Global President at Advertising Week. And for the purposes of this debate, I am your chair. And I'm really excited to start off Advertising Week Europe with this debate. The UK is known for its creative industries and its cultural influence around the world in areas such as music, comedy, TV and news. In fact, um, EY figures show that the um, creative industries represent 4.4% of total EU, um, EU industries before the pandemic. And that's, that's a really important figure because that's actually about eight times larger than the telecoms industry. So to put it in context, this has been a huge industry of great importance all across Europe. But here in the UK, there are some interesting signals. The planned sale of public service broadcaster Channel 4 has been dubbed cultural vandalism by Alan Clements, who is the managing director of Two Rivers Media. And a senior um, Tory MP, Julian Knight, he even suggested that the move to sell Channel 4 was revenge for the government's dislike of Channel 4's news agenda. Punchy stuff. And it's not just in the creative TV landscape that this is an issue. The House of Lords European Affairs Committee, Charles Hayes, wrote to the government to complain that the Brexit impact on musicians and other touring artists was extremely severe. Worse, he said, there's an appearance of a lack of coordination across the multiple departments and agencies involved in supporting the creative industries and a reluctance to engage with the EU. And this is particularly worrying because that same EY report suggested that actually the music industry had lost 90% of their revenues during 2020 in the pandemic. So really needs the support to get back up and moving. So today we are going to debate for the UK, is it still really a cultural powerhouse? This country has long used its soft power to gain influence for brand UK abroad, but does this still really stand? We've brought parties to the stage and they're going to delve into the issue which brings together media, politics and economy. So now I'm going to introduce everybody and welcome to the stage. Um, David Abraham, he is the founder and group CEO of Wonderhood Studios. He's the former CEO of Channel 4 and UK TV. He's been a busy man. 
He's led channels for Discovery Networks in the UK, USA, and in the earlier part of his career, he was a co-founder of the creative agency St. Luke's. And he co-founded Wonderhood Studios in 2018. David, the busiest man in TV, please join us on stage. Now, David, good. Yep, just vault up. It's also a physical exercise um, challenge at Advertising Week Europe. Um, also joining David to argue for the motion is Sarah Taylor. She is the client partner at Future Factor. She's a communications expert who's lived in Amsterdam for 14 years. She returned to the UK in January 2016, equipped with a very well-developed continental perspective and appreciation of how to work in cross-border communications within the EU. She's also first-hand witnessed the impact of Brexit in both Europe and the UK. She's also an advisor for the sustainable fashion brand Beasties Wildlife. And Sarah, please join us on stage. You can also jump up or use the steps. I like it. Everyone's going for the complicated. They never take the easy option. Arguing against the motion today is Claire Enders. Claire founded Enders Analysis in 1997, and today it is the leading TMT research company in the UK. And Claire herself is the top independent analyst on the creative industries, broadcast economy, and digital exploitation models. Claire has been actively involved in developing the V&A Design Museum in Dundee, which opened in 2018. She has more accolades than I could ever mention up here, but just a few of them. In 2016, she was made a Fellow of the Royal Television Society for her significant contribution to TV. She is a member of the Director's Circle at Modern Art Oxford. She's a former trustee of the NSPCC and Glyndebourne. Claire, please join us on stage. I'm not sure I even got through listing Claire's accolades, but otherwise we would never start the debate. And then also arguing against, against the motion is Robert Hay. So Robert is the Strategy and Sustainability Director at Brand Finance, and he leads their sustainability research and consulting practice. Now, if you don't know Brand Finance, they run an amazing thing called the Global Soft Power Index, and it's the world's most comprehensive research study all about the perceptions of different nation brands, nations like the UK. And anyone who is anyone in either politics or global power has spoken at his soft power summit from Hillary Clinton to Ban Ki-moon. Robert, please join us. So thank you, everybody. I feel very uncultured just in proximity to you. I feel my cultured level has dropped at least 30% since I got up here. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to debate this issue. Each person is going to come up in turn and say their piece. So we're going to have um, David for the motion. Claire is going to argue against the motion. Sarah is going to back David up with a rebut for the motion. And then Robert will be coming back to conclude our debate with another um, go against the motion. And then at the end, we're going to have some fun and get you all to vote. So if during your time you're sitting here, you have a chance, please scan the QR code that allows you access to our interactive system so that you can vote at the end of the debate and we'll have a live vote and see who wins. Um, I think it goes without saying that everybody debating this issue has given their time, thinking and effort. So please give them your careful attention, even if you disagree and think they're completely wrong. Um, David, I'm gonna ask you to step up Please come on up, David. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. 
So over the past uh, 40 years, Channel 4 um, has been challenged by different governments every decade or so to explain and to justify its unique model as a publicly owned but commercially funded media enterprise, one that exists to serve diverse audiences while nurturing the UK creative industries. The successive inquiries has led to, have led to very similar conclusions. That channel, the Channel 4 model, has adapted to change very, very well over four decades and continues to serve audiences with distinctive ideas and that its not-for-profit model delivers cultural and economic value uh, for the whole of the UK and punches above its weight on the global stage. In my time at Channel 4, I think Channel uh, Film 4 was awarded nine Oscars in seven years. Nevertheless, the current government is attempting to force through a sale of Channel 4 in the face of unanimous expert questions about its plans and in the absence of a detailed impact assessment on the diminution in competition that will certainly result. So I'm not going to waste any time here attempting to summarise the pretty flimsy arguments being tabled to support these proposals, since I think few really believe that this decision is being driven by an authentic concern for the future of UK public service broadcasting. What I can do this morning is briefly to take a closer look at what is going to happen next and what the consequences will be, as it seems very clear to me that there's still a lot of confusion about the actual process, even amongst those of us who are in media. So let's begin with the, uh, the, what the proposed privatisation of Channel 4 is not. Unlike previous conservative privatisations, this one certainly will not lead to an IPO or a tell-sid moment in which the British public can directly invest a stake into the channel itself. This is just not going to happen, even though the romance of it somehow lingers in the minds of some conservative backbenchers. What the government is actually up to feels a little bit more shady. Think of it in terms of a backroom carve-up, using the fig leaf argument of strengthening the PSB system. Ministers have instructed a major US investment bank to begin the process of drumming up interest. The illogicality of trading an annual dividend to UK PLC that has worked for over 40 years for a one-off lump sum that will be immediately swallowed up by the vast national debt is utterly baffling. And so the implementation, therefore, of this uh, policy deserves our forensic scrutiny uh, from here on in. In recent days, the government has let it be known, rather like an excitable estate agent, that there are already over 20 expressions of interest in Channel 4. Now, this leads to be taken with a very large pinch of salt. In truth, there are really only a small number of credible bidders. The rest are just interested in having a good look around the property. ITV is credible bidder number one. Owning Channel 4 helps it to balance the scale of its existing channel portfolio with the younger and more upmarket demographics of Channel 4. But ITV today already has 46% share of commercial TV revenues. And with Channel 4, they would vault to 72%. This presents any offer they might make for Channel 4 with a major hurdle with the Competition and Markets Authority, which still upholds airtime pricing restrictions imposed upon ITV when it merged from several regional companies over a decade ago. 
And this is also why the government is already making noises about defining the ad market differently to include digital. The only problem with this is that for TV advertisers, primetime television is not a substitutable medium. So it is unsurprising that brands and their industry representatives are already balking at these proposals, especially when combined with the challenge of massive recent TV price inflation. So expect to hear a lot more from them in the months ahead. After all, it's the advertisers who are, pay who are paying for the programmes on Channel 4, not the taxpayers. The other channel, uh, challenge on an ITV bid is it produces most of its own programmes. So the white paper the government's published has conveniently opened the door to Channel 4 being able to do the same, thereby putting at least half of its current 350 suppliers out of business, one of whom is my own business, um, many of whom are based outside London. So expect to hear a lot more from the independent production sector in the months ahead too. Furthermore, ITV has itself been subject to foreign takeover bids and speculation in the past. So this makes the longer term protection of Channel 4's unique remit even more challenging without the imposition of conditions which will act rather like a poison pill and reduce its overall value. In my own direct experience as someone who's run a channel in America, US media executives, unless they've lived for decades in the UK, really do struggle to understand the way that public service broadcasting works in the UK, as it is inherently non-profit maximising. Many MPs say they want to see the full remit of Channel 4 upheld, if not even strengthened, in a sell-off scenario. Now, in my view, this is at best naive and at worst dishonest. Expect more political noise around selling the family silver to Uncle Sam. Credible bidder number two is Sky, with whom Sky, uh, Channel 4 already have a growing number of partnerships. Now, Sky could usefully flex Channel 4's free-to-air assets to help promote its pay business, which builds on how they, the two share Formula One today, for example. Sky could commit to protecting Film 4, one of the crown jewels of the UK independent film industry, in a way that ITV will struggle to do. But uh, the aspect of the sky bid, which might focus minds at DCMS, is that if successful, it would harm ITV, who would lose market share, pricing power, and whose audiences would, by comparison to Sky's, begin to look very old indeed. Overnight, the government would have weakened the central part of the PSB system that ITV currently delivers. Interestingly, a successful ITV bid harms Sky a lot less than the other way round due to the diversity of revenue models that Sky has built. A successful Sky bid could, however, interfere with Channel 5's current arrangements within Sky's airtime sales house. And as a result, there is jeopardy for Channel 5's role within the PSB system here too. Credible bidder number three is the BBC. They have flirted with Channel 4 several times in the past and already partnered with them on airtime sales for the UK TV channels. Now, the obvious problem with a BBC bid is, is that it substantially reduces competition for high-quality public service content, especially in news. The BBC is also unlikely to have the deepest pockets in a competitive bid scenario. Lastly, it would quite be quite surprising if this government... Uh, as the effective seller, backs an outcome that actually strengthens the BBC. 
Of course, there will be other bidders out there, such as Channel 5 Viacom and Warner Brothers Discovery and even STV. But there isn't time to itemize the pros and cons of each, other than to say that they all come with limitations, baggage and tricky trade-offs for the government as a seller. Not least because, to the US companies, Channel 4 will be a bit of a rounding error in terms of their global scale. And therefore, the remit will forever remain at risk of dilution. So expect noises from beyond the red, for, red, red wall on this issue too. Now Channel 4 itself has tabled a carefully thought through and innovative solution in which it would partner with private companies and invest even more in the nations and regions of the UK. This is an approach that critically also maintains the editorial independence of the channel and is worthy of careful consideration by Parliament. So it is telling that ministers have quickly moved to stifle debate about it and shut it down as a credible option produced by a team who is successfully managing the channel and which is supported by its board. So why is this? The government claims that with Channel 4 remaining on its books, a granny in Stockport is exposed to the financial risk of its failure. Now this is a pretty disingenuous argument, as much as an entirely theoretical risk. Because Channel 4 has uh, survived through the dot-com crash, the ERM crisis, 9-11, the 2008 recession, and of course the recent pandemic, and throughout it has stood on its own two feet. But we might, however, be about to go into a really major global recession at the precise moment the government is negotiating a sale, which some might argue is about the most reckless thing in terms of timing uh, in the last 40 years to attempt to do. So, in setting off down uh, this current path, the government is certain to encounter a series of known unknowns, complications and challenges, which are far more concrete than safeguarding the purse of the fabled granny in Stockport. At direct risk are thousands of job losses in the independent sector across the UK, the diminution of competition in advertising sales and in production supply, and crucially, a loss of editorial independence and creative risk-taking that will come with answering to shareholders who are obliged to maximising profit. And it's unsurprising that commentators around the world, and particularly in Europe, are scratching their heads as to why this is happening in the UK at all. In conclusion, we are living in an age of global media consolidation, which we can see is leading to fewer, bigger franchises in film and in television, in books, and even in music globally. Channel 4 was set up 40 years ago as a counterbalance to the cultural duopoly that existed in television in the UK at that time. The PSB system has maintained its brilliantly British equilibrium for over 40 years, but it could now be about to be altered in a way that will have quantifiable implications for decades to come. Ofcom have a stated duty to support and strengthen the PSB system overall. The Competition and Markets Authority have also recently stated their commitment to challenging oligopolies, especially during the cost of living crisis. We have a right to expect that if the time is coming to reform the ownership model of Channel 4, both these bodies do their jobs thoroughly and independently and with the UK viewer and citizen front and centre of their minds. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and thank you to Advertising Week for asking me to come and present to you. Um, on, on the different side of the equation, on a, a different perspective, uh, which is that of the overall milieu which we offer to the world, 
Um, in that sense, the UK has had uh, a, an outstanding record. Um, the cultural industries uh, clocking around 60 billion of gross value added in 2019, larger than Germany and France, which those three countries themselves comprise 54% of total creative industries. That, of course, comprises also advertising and market research, uh, printing and, and reproduction of, of books, music, um, and, and of course, publishing, uh, TV pr production, and broadcasting. So it, we have a very, very significant uh, uh, impact on, on, on ourselves, on the world, um, really because we have scale. Um, uh, we have very large domestic audiences, and we have export markets combined, obviously with the uh, amazing advantage of the English language and, and the invention of evidence-based activity and, 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 of course, the existence of many, many uh, brands of extraordinary longevity, um, the Financial Times, the Times, uh, the BBC, to speak of only a number of 100-plus-year-old brands. Um, indeed, the male is 125 years old. So the uh, amount of, of, of effort that we put into all of this creates a unique milieu and also a unique export story in Europe. We are the only major exporter of cultural goods, uh, around 20 billion in uh, 2020. And uh, chief among them, uh, as you would expect, um, are, is the impact of digital. On, on, on our culture and our cultural impact has been immense. Um, Netflix's 220 million subscribers um, have access to many, many British programs, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of hours, thousands of hours. Um, streaming music services, Spotify has 422 million subscribers. Many of the best new British singers, composers, and so on originate on YouTube and on TikTok today. Um, Apple Music has over 100 million users, many of them uh, uh, featuring uh, huge amounts of British music. And in fact, the UK achieved um, around 12% of streams, of total streams in the world um, in 2021, up from around 11.7% in 2020. Um, this figure places the UK second to the U USA at 59%, but it's broadly proportionate to, pro to uh, population size. And in fact, I would say that that's a very interesting thing about the UK. It's exports of programs, it's exports of music, it's exports of books are all proportionate to the USA's and sit along proportionate to the population size. But there are areas where we punch above our weight, and that area is, in fact, the news. So I'm not going to take much time because I know we're really running very, very low on time. Um, so I'm just going to focus on why this is so important in this world as someone who has spent the better part of her professional life defending the BBC and Channel 4 and public service broadcasting in the UK. And for over 35 years, there have been phases in this battle and this journey, which are, have been absolutely surprising. And all I can tell you is, that the BBC has been condemned so many times, and this ragtag army of believers and passionate defenders of free public goods of extraordinary high quality delivered to us and to the world, this ragtag army is still winning. In fact, the BBC 
has a six-year deal that was signed in January, which I described as a minor miracle for Dominic Cummings, thought the BBC was irrelevant and looked to Netflix for all answers. We say this, as you all know, the Netflix share price and that of all the other American companies in that field are under enormous pressure, dropping like a stone. And let's not even go where the tech sector is going. It's absolutely catastrophic. 250 billion wiped out off crypto in a single week is a catastrophic and seismic event and so on. So the PSBs keep on delivering. And in this environment, as well of recessionary conditions, there we've seen already in April cancellations of Sky subscriptions, cancellations of Netflix have been happening since the beginning of the year. We're going to see a renewal of interest in very, very high quality British made material. And even though Netflix and Sky and all of these companies that invest in our culture and are extraordinarily important players in our ecology. They invest really significant sums. Uh, Netflix around 400 million, Sky is up to around a billion dollars of investment this year. These are very, and the Elstree development is, is a three billion development in total and the amount of productions that will come to the UK, it's a tsunami. Um, but that said, the actual impact on British culture of all of that has been to actually soften and displace a kind of British uh, distinctiveness. I'm glad that it is still there, but we've measured it in our work in a number of different ways. And all I can say is that anyone who believes that public service broadcasting is not the best model in the world, I could only say um, I have lived in many other countries in the world. And, and, and I, yesterday at the Zeitgeist that Google put on, there were media from all over the world and what they kept saying was, my heavens, thank heavens, you've been supporting uh, this extraordinary set of institutions because they have a disproportionate impact in a world where 75% of the world's populations has no access to a free press. Within that context, the BBC is the largest single news provider operating globally, uh, reaching around 500 million users a week, um, up by around 5% over the last year. Uh, it's a combination of the lead that the Britain took in developing vaccines to also the element of, of analysis of geopolitical issues, which people look to the BBC for. Um, but there are many other publications that are reaching very, very large numbers of of users worldwide, the Mail Online at 200 million, uh, the Guardian at 125 million a week. Um, these are phenomenal uh, 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 statistics, and 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 I have to say I'm extraordinarily proud to be part of a, a country, a part of a process that codifies complex events, and that serves them up to anyone in the world that does not have access to that. And and this is something which our government is putting at risk. A, by questioning the license fee, B, by uh, actually refusing to allow the BBC to have an increase, and C, by the privatization of Channel 4. These are all risks uh, to our milieu, and I hope that you will continue to defend our sector, but I have to say, our British voice is singing more loudly today than ever before. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so while David addressed the mechanisms and the direct implications of the decisions being made around Channel 4, I want to spend some time addressing what is or has become a little bit of a preoccupation with our cultural influence beyond our own borders. As Ruth said, I lived in um, the Netherlands for a considerable chunk of my life. And 
I've never encountered it to the, in the same way or in the same uh, with the same emphasis as I have in the UK. This idea that we must have cultural influence on other nations or beyond our borders. Culture is a political tool to wield power, however soft, smacks of a colonial past that, frankly, I feel we need to move beyond. Is the UK losing its cultural influence? Well, yes, I would say undoubtedly so. But I would also argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Long before the BBC or Channel 4, British cu culture dominated in large part because of the empire and because of the resulting dominance of the English language. And there have always been vehicles for culture, broadcasters being just one of them. But the modes of transport have changed over the years. As the world becomes smaller through predominantly things like social media, our cultural connectivity with other underrepresented nations has increased. The recent, recent explosion of Korean culture, for example, has emerged through our growing awareness of K-pop, of movies and TV shows such as Parasite and Squid Games. That simply would not have happened even 15 years ago. And you know what? We are all the richer for it. A shared cultural appreciation is surely preferred over one nation having more influence than another. You may argue that without influence, we lose our so-called soft power. But the creative industries and our culture are two very separate things. At an industry level, we've seen creativity thrive. And especially when you consider that our industry is actually a showcase of multiple cultures, not just our own. So for me, the reference to Channel 4 in this debate title is somewhat of a straw man. The conflation of creative industries and our culture is misleading. TV, movies, music, they're all representative of our industry capabilities and our influence at an editorial and curatorial level. I want to draw on an example here. In the past four years alone, Indiana Jones, Jurassic World, various Star Wars offshoots, they've all been filmed in the UK. But I think we can all agree that rampaging dinosaurs, American archaeologists, Jedi Knights, are in no way representative of our culture. These creative exports are reflective of our studio infrastructure, our tax breaks and our locations, more than any kind of cultural, cultural affinity between the UK and some Hollywood heavyweights. While the impact of funding cuts may be felt nationally, the boom in streaming services and YouTube means that good content will always have a home and have an international audience. The opportunity to showcase our creative industry beyond our borders has in fact grown. It's not decreased. So there's a clear misunderstanding between our culture and our creative exports. And I'm not sure how much soft power we've gained through our actual cultural pursuits. Village fates, a requisite pint in the pub after work, or a somewhat sort of 
obsession with Sunday roasts are all enjoyable parts of our culture. But let's not get carried away with the notion that these are somehow the envy of the world. So I would ask the floor to consider, when you hear the other compelling cases, is it our culture or our industry strength that is now responsible for our influence? In closing, culture isn't something that's dictated to us by the arts or by institutions. It's something that emerges from within our communities. And as these communities exist increasingly at a global level, the idea that one country has some kind of claim to cultural leadership is somewhat absurd. So yes, the House is correct in its assertion that we're losing our cultural influence. But that, in my view, is far from a bad thing for our industry. What do we mean by culture? Well, as Sarah said, you know, we can mean the arts and the media and entertainment, but we can also take a broader de definition, which takes in customs, institutions and behaviours. I'd like to explore both of these definitions, starting with the media and entertainment. For the last three years, Brand Finance has run a major research exercise, surveying over 100,000 people from 101 countries to assess the perceptions of nation brands. The results of this year's survey give a clear indication that the UK's cultural influence is not waning. We ask whether countries are influential in the arts and entertainment and whether they have an influential media. Ranked against other nations, the UK placed third and second on these metrics, positions which have remained consistent across all three years of the study. And it isn't just the research data that undermines the proposition, the economic data does too. Claire's given you a wealth of information already, so I won't repeat those facts uh, in too much detail here. But to take just the most recent year, US investment into UK film and TV has increased 25%. And within two years, the UK will have more studio space than Hollywood. It's also worth considering the nature of our cultural influence. The shock of Brexit led some to suggest that we've taken a turn backwards to a narrower vision of Britain that values and exports a traditionalist vision of the UK in the form of Downton Abbey, Victoria and royal pomp. But you only have to look at the UK's cultural output to see that that simply isn't the case. In TV, alongside shows that hark back, are others questioning norms and attitudes like sex education or promoting action like David Attenborough's documentaries. Even Bridgerton, whilst revelling in Regency imagery, provides a corrective vision of a Britain that has been ethnically mixed for longer than many believe. In music, the UK's biggest acts like Ed Sheeran, Little Mix, Dua Lipa and Harry Styles reflect a UK that's regionally diverse, multicultural and progressively minded. In film, for every Benedict Cumberbatch reinforcing the image of, Brit of Britain as a place of eccentric poshos, there's a John Boyega reshaping that picture. And in the world of social media, influencers like Zoella, KSI, Anishka Lawrence represent Britain not as a place of elitism and a stiff upper lip, but of fun, energy, empathy and compassion. Even at the government level, a diverse view of the UK is promoted. The UK Great Campaign is widely seen to be one of the most successful nation branding initiatives of recent years. It continues to showcase the breadth of what the UK has to offer, from entertainment and the arts to science and technology. 
So what if we take that broader definition of culture? Seen from that point of view, the UK's cultural influence is our ability to shape the prevailing ideas, preferences, customs and behaviours in any sphere. In other words, the UK's cultural influence is its soft power. At this level, brand finance's research is even more emphatic. The UK's overall soft power is actually increasing. The UK ranked third in 2020 and 2021, but has risen to second behind the US this year. This result might seem surprising. The current administration can sometimes seem determined to undermine the UK's position on some of the key pillars of soft power. In the arts, we've seen the privatisation of Channel 4, threats to the licence fee, reduction of school music provision, and restrictions on performers' mobility following Brexit. On governance, we've seen lobbying by MPs, COVID contracts for cronies, and violation of the ministerial code. And in the diplomatic field, we've seen sabre rattling over Brexit and the dysfunctional and uncharitable Homes for Ukraine scheme. So in this context, how do we explain the UK's robust soft power and cultural influence? The first reason is that as shocking and well-publicised as these fiascos may appear to us, their reach outside of the Westminster bubble and the UK national media hasn't been anywhere near as substantial. In addition, the UK's military and diplomatic support for Ukraine has been substantial. And whilst Boris's motivations may be partly self-interested, his commitment and diplomatic efforts have been seen and appreciated not just in Ukraine, but worldwide. Perhaps the most important explanation is time. Brand equity, whether corporate or national, takes years to develop. And whilst a certain amount can be lost in a short space of time, for the most part, erosion of brand equity is a long-term process. That's precisely why brands are such valuable financial assets. The actions that the government is taking now may take years, even decades, to begin to reduce our soft power and cultural influence. So while Boris may be a source of cultural cringe, while the government may be undermining our institutions, and while it may be underinvesting in the future of the creative arts, we cannot yet make the claim that the UK is losing its cultural influence. And for that reason, I urge you to reject the motion. Thank you. Okay, everybody, we only have a few seconds left. I like to think that whatever your view, there are very few countries that could awaken a debate that involves the words eccentric poshos and rampaging dinosaurs <laughs> in an otherwise very serious debate about the future of creative industries. But thank you, everybody. It's now time for you to decide. Um, please take out your phones. I want you to vote either for or against the motion. Um, if you're here live in the studio, as I mentioned earlier, you can scan the QR code. People at home can be using their interaction system on their screen. Um, we're going to give you one minute to vote, although it's feeling pretty conclusive from what I can see on the monitors here. So we get, oh, we've got some new votes. Are there any last pitches by our debaters here to change the mood in the theatre? We're currently equal 50-50. I would, I would re-emphasise the fact that it's our editorial influence and our industry influence over our cultural influence, which is the debate at hand. Sarah's here. She says it's only our rampaging dinosaurs on films. 
it's not really <laughs> us. Bad news, guys. No, I'm sorry. I have to interject here that it is our ability to convey the truth, which is actually not something that someone who is 64 year old, years old actually believes is fungible or indeed debatable. I mean, we are giving the world impartial information every day and they need it. So that is an incredible gift that we are all paying for. And I don't believe that it should be uh, viewed as some kind of luxury. It's not a luxury for the people who don't have it. Yeah, yeah. I think that is a very good point, whatever side of the debate you come down on. OK, can we now close the polls? Because I think we're just about ready. Oh, there's been, oh, my God. I'm a bit anxious as we've talked about whether David said is the government sales shady, and I feel a bit the same about our polling system now as it shot to 50-50. It's only 10 votes. I know. Come on, you guys. You could have done and it's more. Three participants Come voting on. over and over again. Oh, you can't get in. Ah. Oh. Uh, right, Let's look. Do a show for hands. the moment. Should we do it on show we're, hands? We're, there's claims of a fix up here on stage, <laughs> but for the moment, we're going to leave it as 50 50. I want to uh. thank everyone who voted. Argue with each other on the way out. Guys, I want to thank you for taking the time and effort to come in here. Thanks for listening. For more content like this and to learn about Advertising Week's world-leading events for the advertising, marketing, and technology industries, visit www.advertisingweek.com. TV ads can make for some memorable, powerful stories. The only problem for advertisers is until now they haven't been fully measurable. Mountain's self-serve platform, Performance TV, provides the up-to-date insights you need to take the guesswork out of measuring your connected TV ads impact. Mountain lets you build customizable dashboards with the metrics that matter most to you, allowing for real-time measurement, including when viewers visit your website or make a purchase after watching your ad, regardless of what household device they use. Visit mountain.com to learn more.